This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. You know, I, I thought I would entitle today's sermon, um, Does a Fish Know It Is Wet? Does a fish know it's wet? Have you ever thought about that? Do you think a fish knows it's wet? Yeah? And that is really culture, isn't it? Without a second thought, you just assume. You may not even assume, you know, it's, it's just, it is what it is, right? And, and so the, the, the topic that I was given today is how do you build strong families? So let me, let me pray and then go into Jeremiah. Yeah, Father, we know that you instituted the family unit uh, right in the Garden of Eden when you put Adam and Eve together. And so we know that strong families, whole families, has always been a part of your plan. And as a church, um, we try our best, but we also disappoint you, I think. Obey your precepts. Obey not with fear, but obey under this umbrella of grace that you give to us. So as we wrestle with this, this morning, help us, help us, I pray. Illuminate, bring to light what you wish for us to take away. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Jeremiah 35, you know, because you can never trust what's on the slide fully, because, you know, I could have taken it from the wrong place. So you need to look at your own Bibles, okay? So let me read uh, verse 1 to 16, and then we'll carry on. The word that Jehoiakim, son of, the, son of Josiah, king of Judah, verse 2, go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to get Jezaniah, son of Jeremiah, the, the son of Habizinah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Messiah. I, sorry, I can't say these names. Son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the Rechabites and said to them, drink some wine. Great, isn't it? Huh? Such a great invitation. Verse 6, but they replied, We do not drink wine because our forefather Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in a land where you are nomads." We have obeyed everything our forefather Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we, nor our wives, nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine, or built houses to live in, or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jehonadab commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. Verse 12, Then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go and tell the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefathers' commands. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again, I sent you all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your ancestors. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried, you, have carried out the command their forefather gave them, but these people have not obeyed me. Verse 17, therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounce against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jehonadab, and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, I will, ne you, sorry, Jehonadab, son of Rechab will never fail to have a descendant to serve me. So verse 1 to 5, we read of a test, right? And what's the test? There's a party, come to the party, want you to drink wine. Here it is. And what was the response? Sorry, we can't. Because our forefather, this guy called Jehanadab, said to us, these are the things we can't do. Did the Rechabite family pass the test in this case? They did. Okay, so when was the first time the name Jehonadab appears? He was the companion of a guy called King Jehu. King Jehu was the guy who killed Ahab and Jezebel, right? Remember that? So Jehonadab, between Jehonadab and this, and this incident here in Jeremiah 35, guess how long that duration was? Any guesses? You get a free bottle. <laughs> okay? So scholars say approximately 200 to 250 years. So when Jehonadab said, don't do this, 200 to 250 years later in Jeremiah 35, Jeremiah, based on God's instruction, gave the family a test. And they passed with flying colors. So, you know, you can go to, you can go to, um, there's, a, there's a Jewish encyclopedia.com. You can go on online, you can search for the Rechabites and you can read all about them. You know, uh, some, some, some can trace them back to, um, they actually say the, the Rechabite family is part of the Kenites. And the Kenites actually originate from, What's his name? Um, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. So that whole lineage, the Kenites and the Rechabite family was a part of that. So, did, so there's, you know, there's a scholar that says, it might not have been Jehonadab that established the culture of not drinking wine, not doing this, not doing that. It could have been part of the Kenite history and Jehonadab just reinforced it 
reminded, re-established it. Okay? So whether it started from Jethro and earlier on, or did it start from Jehonadab, we're not sure. But at the very least, we know it was 200 years. So the question I've been asking myself as I've been thinking about, you know, establishing a strong family culture, how do you make something last 200 years? So think back about your own family lineage. I think back about my own. I can't trace it more than three generations, maybe. Okay? But what does it take to see something carry on for 200 years? All right, I'm going to ask you to turn to a friend, um, if it's okay with you. So two or three people, and just reflect out loud to each other, whether you have an answer or not an answer, maybe just think out loud. What can we do to get something to last for 200 years? A family culture to last 200 years. Two minutes, go for it. Okay, so if you've been taking notes, uh, Jehu or Jehonadab, the companion of Jehu, is in 2 Kings chapter 10. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 10 verse 15. So that's where you read the name Jehonadab. Now here is what's important to understand. The Canaanites, uh, this scholar actually used the term voluptuous living. Okay, so the Canaanites were rich. There was a certain lifestyle that was extravagant. And so when, when Jehonadab talked about this austere, you know, simple, uh, don't do this, don't do that, nomadic lifestyle of following Yahweh, it was, a, it was, a, it was a call to live set apart, to be set apart, to be countercultural. Okay? So you've got to understand Canaan was, you know, Canaan was, was of a certain way, and the Rechabites were called to live in an alternative way. So, so um, verse 1 to 5, we read of the test. Verse 6 to 11, we see that the Rechabites passed the test. And then verse 12 to 17 is the contrast. Here, Jeremiah confronts the, the people of Israel and says, here is how you're behaving. Look at the Rechabites, and here is judgment on you, therefore, Israel. Okay? And then verse 18, we see the promise that God makes, uh, Jeremiah makes on behalf of God to the Rechabites. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jehonadab, have followed all his instructions and done everything he ordered. Verse 19, therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a descendant to serve me. So in 1828, Dr. Wolf, an English missionary, found what he believes to be the Rechabite tribe or living descendants near Mecca in Arabia. Okay? They still observe the pure Mosaic law. They speak Arabic and a little Hebrew, and they would number about 60,000 people. This was in 1828. Phenomenal, eh? Phenomenal. So, I'm here not to speak about 
the fact that you shouldn't drink wine. So it's not per se <laughs> the content of this passage that I want to focus on, right? I think what I want to focus on as per the question you discuss is how do we sustain something over a long period of time? How do we create culture starting in our families or continuing on from the heritage of our forefathers if it's been a positive heritage, okay? Some of us, we've, you know, like my family, my wife's family, there are certain things in our family lineage that we see is generational sin. And we've had to confront that, all right? Uh, so there are things in our heritage that might need to be redeemed, broken, redeemed. So the assertion I want to make is from this passage, it is possible, we see, to have something sustained over multiple generations. Um, you know, it's possible to establish a way of doing and thinking and believing. And the Rechabite family can encourage us. Now, I also want to assume that all of you sitting here, you have already worked out, you know, stuff that we have wrestled with as a church previously, your primary call, your secondary call, you are, you are certain about your family values, you know what it is, you're seeking to establish those values, and values, uh, you can, you know, there are, many, there are many ways to slice it and cut it, you can go to the theological, uh, theological virtues, they call it, so Thomas Aquinas, for example, Augustine would speak about the, the theological values, you know, Paul brought it up, faith, hope, and love, charity, okay? So those are the three theological values. Then you can go to the Catholic cardinal virtues. So the opposite would be what? The cardinal sins, right? The deadly sins. Sloth, gluttony, avarice, etc., etc. So you've got your seven deadly sins. Brad Pitt has a movie about the seven, right? Was it seven? What's the movie called? Seven. Seven deadly sins. But you've got the seven cardinal virtues, which is supposedly the antidote to the seven deadly sins. Uh, you can go fruit of the Spirit. So, so there are many ways you can slice and dice it accord, you know, based on the values that you as a family want to hold on to. Okay? So the assumption is you know your calling as, a fa as an individual, as a, as a family. You also know your values. You're seeking to live it out. Um, now, there's also assumption that you believe in the Great Commission you are seeking to make disciples of your children or your grandchildren. Maybe let me just do a quick survey here. How many of you are um, not married as you sit here? But you have nephews and nieces? Okay, some of you. All right. How many of you have children under the age of six? Under the age of 12? Well, between 7 and 12, primary school. Okay, how many of you have kids that are in high school? High school, okay. How many have kids that are adults and have left the home? How many are grandparents and you have grandchildren or great-grandchildren, both? Okay, good, good, good. Okay, great. So the assumption is you, have a, you, you, you understand that you have a responsibility to disciple your children, your grandchildren, and you want to, okay? And you're creating the margin for that to happen. Margin means time, talent, resources, okay? Time, talent, and treasure. Money, time. Um, you are joyfully, 
accepting invitations by your children, for example, to, ba to, to babysit your grandkids? Why? Because you know that's the time when you sow. So it's not save, your, save the parents from the hassle of their children. It's not, you know, just have fun with them, but you're also intentionally using their time to impart and sow into their lives, right? So I think grandparents, you, you recognize this. You might not have done, done so well with your own children, but you realize you can redeem it by serving your grandchildren well, correct? <laughs> so, so the assumption is that you are using... So practically, here are a couple of things I, would, I can suggest, I think because hopefully we're not just going to be theoretical about this. This phrase, remember when. How, how, how do you sustain something over multiple generations? One of the suggestions would be rituals. Stories, correct? Stories that you tell, rituals that you establish, memories that you constantly share. So this phrase, remember when. Remember when we went on this trip and remember when we found this wallet with a whole pile of money inside and to remember when we fasted and prayed as a family and this is how God answered, remember when. So the Bible is full of narratives, full of stories and I think culture is always about the transmit of family that help to establish the behavior, the practices that you want. Okay, turn back to your friends now. And I want you to share, maybe very briefly, one story that you recall was told to you or that you like to tell to others to establish a certain value or behavior that you want to see. Okay, make sense? What's an example of a story that you have used or that has been used with you to establish a certain family tradition or family value. Okay, go for it. Okay. So, be intentional about the stories that you share. Okay? Be intentional that, about the conversations you have around the fireplace, when you bry, when there are family gatherings, when you, know, you do your Christmas bed, I learned this new phrase in South Africa, you have Christmas bed. Um, okay. it's, it's great. <laughs> but Christmas bed times are wonderful, um, you know, because those are all the opportunities where, where people are shaped, okay? especially the next generation. But what, what, about, what about complex parenting scenarios? Okay, so I think some of you sit here and you think to yourself, is it too late because my kids are grown? Or my kids are in boarding school. I only see them for the weekend or maybe for a, a week during the school vacation. Or what if I'm parenting alone? So what do I do then? What if my kids don't want to listen to me anymore? They're only with their peers and I don't per se have a lot of influence. So what do I do? I, I take comfort in um, a few things. One is that God is sovereign. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have, 
the problem with all this online stuff is you have to be careful what you say. Um, I have a family member that is very, very close to me. And we grew up together and uh, we serve God together. We come from, you know, this person and myself, we come from a, a rich heritage of, of parents that love Jesus and serve Jesus. And this family member of mine uh, decided at university that God, you can't prove the existence of God. <laughs> he essentially became atheist, agnostic, atheist, agnostic, probably more agnostic than atheist. And he, he walked away from God for 30 years. Uh, he's about my age. And uh, tremendous grief, obviously, from his parents and others in the family. Uh, thinking about him and, and, and obviously, you know, one of the takeaways from this story is the importance of prayer because a heck of a lot of us prayed for this person, this family member. He got married a couple of years, two or three years into that marriage. His wife decided to start pursuing God and she gave her life to Jesus and he was a devout husband so he went back with her to church and he gave his life to the Lord about a year ago, you know, 30 years later after walking away from him. So I think about this family member and, and the only thing I can conclude is God is sovereign, you know, and God is calling all the time. And, uh, and our role is to be persistent in praying. Um, our role is to let him be God in that sense. We do what we need to do and we keep loving and praying, but let God do his part. Now, what happens if you feel, oh dear, you know, I've got, I, I, I've, I've messed up. I've messed up with my kids, my grandkids. What do I do? And there's this, there's this quote that I heard at a fatherhood training. And you can show that quote, the 30%. You only need to get it right 30% of the time to have a bond with your child or grandchild. I desperately want to believe this is true. <laughs> I haven't found the reference or where the research, where, you know, the, the journal where this comes from. But I desperately want this to be true. <laughs> Why? Because like you, I mess up too. And and how I console myself is the following. I think kids are like dogs. <laughs> they forgive you very quickly. <laughs> right? Like, you gotta forget. And I think, <laughs> I think, not that kids are stupid like dogs, but neither are dogs stupid. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying that there is an inbuilt innocence and naivete. And, and I think just a resilience of spirit God gives to you, all of us, but to children especially, to want desperately the love, the intimacy that parental figures can give. Right? And so I think with that logic, I think this might be true. And so if it's any comfort to you, it's you don't have to be right all the time. You don't have to get it right all the time. I'm not saying be negligent, be malicious, therefore, you know, be the worst parent you can be, blank check, do what you want. I'm saying try. And even if you mess up, it's okay, there's grace. I think that's what this 
statement that you say. That's grace. Okay? And the cho- your children, your, your, your grandchildren will respond to the times when you get it right. Okay? And let God be God. Do your best under His grace. Is that okay? Yeah? So, yeah, I need this to be right too. <laughs> Amen. Sorry? Oh, keep on going. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Esther probably was betrothed to the king of Persia when she was between 12 and 14 years old. How, was Moses, how old was Moses when he was taken out of the family? Three months. Okay. Um, Probably three months, Exodus 3 to, well, it says Exodus 3 to three months. Joseph trafficked what age? Probably 17. Daniel and his friends sent to boarding school? <laughs> when? Probably 16. So we read of all these situations, and they all, the examples are cited, came from not so straightforward parenting or family setups, right? God still used them. So you might not come, I, we might not come from the perfect family setup, the, the ideal family setup. You know, you might be in a situation where it's not ideal today. Or your children who are married are, not, are in situations that are also not so ideal. But there is grace. It doesn't mean abdicate. It doesn't mean be absent. It doesn't mean do what you want. But it means there's grace. Let us try our best. Um, and, and I think, you know, this, this evening I'll preach again and I think this, the topic will be somewhat tied to today, essentially community, all right, and what to do in community. But I think a big, a big thing we need to also learn is the African saying, right? It takes a village to raise a child. So what is required then? Like, what is your village? What does your village look like? So my wife and I, we've had to intentionally say to a few families, you can discipline our kids because we share the same values if you need to reprimand them, rebuke them, discipline them, we will not stop you. Especially if we're not present, we will not stop you. We want you to help our kids adhere to the family values that we share, your family and our family. So if you need to beat them, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, discipline them, right? Corporal punishment is, you know, we, we, I was in this fatherhood seminar and somebody just said, look, there are 30, I don't know, 37 different ways that you can discipline your children. Corporal punishment should be the last resort, not the first. I think we have to be super clear about that. But it's one of multiple ways you can discipline your children. Obviously, younger versus older. You shouldn't... <laughs> I mean, if the adults... It would be really awkward if you tried to <laughs> inflict corporal punishment on them. So the Eastern Asian African way 
Hebraic way of bringing up your children is always in community. So we, we need to wrestle with what this means. Okay? So I, I want to invite you. It's a call to action. Think about what your village looks like as Afrikaners or as Kosa or colored people. How do you, call, how do you share parenting? Especially if your family setup is not the ideal setup. Okay? In the uh, Hebraic culture, as I draw us towards a close, there are four levels in which discipleship happened in Jesus' time. Um, the first level is in school. And between 4 to 12 years old, they had to memorize the Torah. They had to memorize the first five books. Not read, yeah? Memorize, word for word. So this is what Jesus went through. And then if you complete memorizing, you qualify to attend the Passover at 12 years old, which is what Jesus went through. The girls, the boys memorize the Torah, the first five books. The girls memorize Psalms, Proverbs, and Deuteronomy. Then the next level is you go, uh, this is between 12 and 15. After you have memorized, you start to learn how to interpret to explain. And, at the, and if you make it, you progress. If you, and if you don't make it between 12 and 15, that's when you start to learn your father's trade. So if you're a carpenter, you become a carpenter. If your father was a fisherman, you become a fisherman, a, a stonemason, etc., etc. So 12 to 15 years, they learn their father's trade. And they start to memorize the rest of the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Okay? Level three, those who make it, those who, who memorize, are able to explain, those who are gifted in teaching the scripture, the, 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 yeah, the Tanakh, they are now selected and attached to a rabbi, a rabbi with authority, a rabbi with smicha. And so they study, they live, they walk, they, they sleep, they, they basically immerse themselves in the rabbi's life. They follow him everywhere. That's the third level. And then the fourth level is they become a Torah teacher. And that's when they're 30. Okay? So between 15 and 30, they're learning from the rabbi. At 30, they now can become a rabbi and they would, uh, they would, they would take on their own disciples. So this is how children, in that sense, was exposed to the Scripture. So Jesus knew the text. Jesus loved the text. Jesus memorized the text. Jesus lived the text. The Word of God is key. So a couple of things. Stories, important. Talk about them. Deuteronomy 6, right? Remember when, remember when, remember when. Praying, critical. Um, village. Having a village to raise your, ch your children with you, critical. Knowing the text, living the text, breathing the text, yourself and your family, critical. So can you show the video if it works? Please. Study by the Center for Bible Engagement. General population in the U.S. from 8 to 80. And they just wanted to see how we are engaging with Scripture. Right. And they discovered something 
that actually became kind of the profound discovery of the entire study. It, they weren't even looking for this, and this is kind of became the highlight of the study. Right. Um, when we're in the scripture one time a week, and that could be church on Sunday. That's pastor saying you open your Bible. We hear the message. One time a week had negligible effect on some key areas of your life. So I'll, I'm going to spell that out more here in a moment. Two times a week, negligible effect. Now at three times a week, there was a blip on the map. Like there was a heartbeat. Something happened. Again, a heartbeat. Okay. But here was the profound discovery. When we're in the scripture four times a week, it literally spikes off the chart. But it was literally one, two, three, four, something radically happens. Okay, you got my curiosity. To this what, extent. What kind of behavior is being affected? Feeling lonely drops 30%. Wow. Ang four times a week in the four Bible. Four times a week in the Bible. Okay. Anger issues drop 32%. Uh, bitterness in relationships, marriage, a relationship with your kids, and so on, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant. You know, if there was one area when I'm talking with people that, that they'll be honest about is they just feel spiritually stagnant. Ask them the question, how much time are you spending in Scripture? If they're in the Scripture four times a week or more, it drops 60%. Wow. Viewing pornography drops 61%. That's very important. Now, on a flip positive side, sharing your faith wow. jumps 200%. Wow. Because you have a confidence in God's word. And then discipling others jumps 230%. That's, that's amazing right there. So I'll send the research papers, 21 pages, to see us and you can pass it out. Um, that gives you the empirical data, okay? And then you can decide for yourself if it, makes, if it makes sense or not. So engaging of the scripture makes sense. Okay, you need to. You, you need to, yourself. You know, don't worry about your kids. You need to. <laughs> I need to, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, and I think those of you who have family members that immerse themselves in the scripture, you see the fruits in their life, the fruit in their life, and you see also how it spills over into the rest. Um, you know, a friend of mine in our discipleship group, he, he shared um, an, an analogy, I think it's called. It, oftentimes when we go to the scripture, we think when we go to God or we go to the scripture, we think more like a channel. You know, how do we move what we learn from here to there? How do we learn? How do we read? How do we spend time with God so we can give? Okay? And, and, and sometimes we feel empty uh, because we're always trying to give, 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 and therefore you're always scrambling to learn, be intimate so you can give. And he said, what if we flip that image from being a channel or a canal depending on which you prefer, to being a reservoir. M is full, the overflow is what you give. You see the difference between the two pictures? So in my intimacy, in God, as I immerse myself in God's Word, as I'm in this deep love relationship with Him, there is an overflow, that abundance we read in John 10.10. 10. And that abundance is what people experience. Not trying to 
fill this side so we can empty it and give to the other side, to our children, to our workplace, to our marriage. No, no, let's be in an intimate love relationship with Jesus. And in that overflow, the kingdom of God comes, you know, comes home. So let me conclude. There are always going to be resistances. You can go to the last slide. Three circles. There will always be resistances. The first resistance will be the flesh. The second resistance will be the world. The third resistance will be the supernatural. Correct? The things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do. That's the flesh. The world. In the world. Not of the world. The world is like this. <laughs> Read Galatians 5, 4 and 5. Here are the features of the world. Here is what we're called to. Then the supernatural. The, you know, Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. So, if there is a call to action, and maybe we can respond to this as, as an invitation. If you know you need to do something about your own scripture engagement, if you know it's sorely lacking and you want to make a recommitment to it, maybe you can come up here and we can stand with you as you make your recommitment to God to not legalistically read the Bible, but desirous to be in deep, intimate relationship with Him, you read the Bible, okay? Engage the Scripture. Then for those of you, if you, you know, come to this side, if you think, oh my goodness, I may have messed up a bit. I may have messed up. Um, and I want to come forward and say, Lord, forgive me. Or, Lord, forgive me and help me. You can come forward. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.